Hey everyone, I'm Chris Lesniak. And I'm Rob Beyer. And this is the Debate Math Podcast. Debating mathy topics and mathy pedagogy with mathy people just like you. Let's get into this month's debate. Well, if you know the Common Core, then you have probably seen the eight standards of math practice or the SMPs as we refer to them. So I like to think of the SMPs like my kids. Like, I love them all, but I definitely have a favorite. Here at the Debate Math Podcast, we are huge fans of SMP number three, Instruct Viable Arguments and Critique Reasoning of Others. But we wanted to take some time to highlight some of the other SMPs. And so we reached out to educators asking for their favorites, asking them, what is the best SMP? And today we have three educators willing to share what their favorite SMP is and why. And so first up, arguing for her favorite standard of math practice is an educator in her 10th year of teaching, an amateur gardener and baker, a lifelong fan of the number 28, a perfect number, and a spindrift enthusiast, it's Paige Sheehan. Hi, Paige. Hi. Can you tell our listeners where you are and what your current role is? So I am teaching high school math in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the question we want to ask all of our guests when did math first become controversial to you? So math first became controversial to me in high school. Um, I had always been good at math, but I took a little longer to get things correct. And that was something my teachers ensured that my parents knew, um, but they didn't mind. And then my sophomore year, my teacher started grading my homework for correctness. And I'm like, you know, we'll follow the rules, girl. So I wasn't going to like, feet or change my grade. And I think that mindset just really like bothered me. And I couldn't get past that I was supposed to get a hundred percent of my homework correct. And I ended up getting the lowest grade possible like the lowest grade I'd ever gotten in math um before. And so I keep thinking back to that as a teacher now and I never want my students to feel like they have to get everything a hundred percent right the first time. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Uh, next up is a teacher who just started his 24th year in the classroom, a high school boys basketball coach, and a lover of all things Lego. It's Damien Bess. Hi, Damien. Howdy, howdy. Can you tell our listeners where you are and what your current role is? Yes, um, I'm teaching in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is about 45 minutes northwest of Madison, the state capital. And I'm currently teaching Algebra 2, AP Stats, and AP Kelp and also dual crediting them through a uh, local four-year university in the state. Wow. Welcome. And now the question we ask all of our guests, when did math first become controversial to you? Math first became controversial for me after I had a few years of teaching under my belt. When I first entered the classroom of my own and I started designing and implementing lessons in my courses, most of it seemed pretty straightforward and my students were progressing and growing as I had hoped. Only after gaining more experience, seeing how my students were learning, and how they valued and prospered from different approaches did I begin to feel confident pushing against. That's how it's always been taught. I began to question, why do we teach it this way? Or why is this topic or approach as important as this other one? I remember beginning to push back against two-column proofs and why it had to be done that way as I saw it cause massive stress and angst in my students. From that point forward, I just started to become that guy. I became more comfortable asking why. When I began to see students get worn down from math class and become discouraged, I would try to find better mathematical access points for our students to find success, enjoyment, 
and little wins in their learning of mathematics to hopefully realize that everyone is or can be a math person. Awesome. Thank you for that. And last, but certainly not least, is a longtime educator, the creator of visualpatterns.org, and the Oregon Ducks number one football fan who promises she can kick your ass at homemade foe. It's Fawn Wynn. Hi, Fawn. Hello, 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 everyone. My name is Fawn Wynn, and I live in Southern California, about 30 miles south of Santa Barbara. And every time I say that, I think it always sounds better than being um, 60 miles north of L.A. So, yeah, the weather here is perfect, as you can imagine. It, it really is perfect year-round, but um, apparently not perfect enough for Chris, who left us. And uh, so such a romantic. He left us for love. Yeah, um, yes. We have a small earthquake recently, right? A few weeks ago, and it was at center right here in our town, Ojai. Yeah, so a little bit scary. And can you share what your current role is? Yeah, I'm currently working at Amplify uh, just for this last year. Before that, I was in the classroom for 30 years and then three years as a math coach for a K through eight school district. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, two of those three years as a math coach was during COVID. And with that, the question we want to ask all of our guests, when did math first become controversial to you? Math was first um, became controversial to me when I took a summer math course after I was already a school teacher for two, three years teaching science. I took the course um, because I'd always loved math. And the reason I always loved math was I had really good grades. I had mostly A's. Then this math class put me in a state of mind that was foreign to me uh, in terms of school. Um, I was stuck on every single problem that he assigned. Like, what the hell? I thought I was smart, right? So luckily, my um, classmates were also stuck. And our math professor, Dr. Shaughnessy, he actually said, if you're not stuck, then I actually assigned the wrong problem. So it felt really safe, right? It's really safe to struggle and safe to feel sorry and sad for me. But um, yeah, and we were all stuck. So that was good. So I would spend hours working on problems, staying awake at night, uh, thinking about it. Um, but I realized how joyful that was. I actually savored the struggle. And um, Paige, you mentioned, so I mentioned you're a baker, and I always wanted to bake. And when I say savor, I, I do a lot of um, comparisons to food. And have you ever tasted the best dessert on the planet, which is um, Gordon Ramsay's uh, sticky toffee pudding? I'm not even a dessert person, but you have to do that before you die. Before. So anyway, uh, talk about savoring that struggle as in savoring this, this dessert that's sublime. Um, so I, I learned so much about math and math mathematical thinking in that one summer course than all my previous years combined. And um, I just felt kind of shortchanged, right? Uh, as, as a student, I was misled to think I was good in math when it's really just, you know, I could memorize, be a good student. So I, I made a promise to myself right there and then um, to not do that to my students. Wonderful. A metaphor and all. Thank you. And with that, let's get into the debate. We begin with opening statements from each of our speakers. You each have two minutes to present your arguments. Paige, you are up first. You have two minutes and your time begins now. Okay. My claim is that SMT number one, make sense of problems and perseverance solving them is the best SMT. And I have two warrants to support my claim. Number one, 
SNP number one lays the foundation for all of the other SNPs. Making sense of the problem must be the first step for any problem solving, and persevering through a problem allows students the chance to demonstrate all of the other SNPs. One could even argue that some of the other SNPs could fit inside of the first standard. Students need to be able to make sense of problems to find entry points and create a plan. Without a plan, students will be unable to move forward. If students don't take time to make sense of what a problem is asking, how are they supposed to know what tools they need to use or what prior knowledge they should be drawing from? If students can't understand a problem, how are they supposed to create a viable argument? Or like, let me try that again. If students can't understand a problem, how are they supposed to create a viable argument for a claim? If they can't persevere through a problem, how can they reach a point of modeling or finding any structure? Students need to be able to make sense of a problem and persevere before they can do anything else. There's a reason why it's number one. Warn number two, it's the best because it reminds me and my students that all mathematicians have to first take time to make sense of the problem and then they need to persevere through setbacks, mistakes, and frustrations in order to solve it. All the other SMPs are important, but this one reminds us that all mathematicians, even ones with PhDs, go through this process and share these feelings as they solve problems. It helps unite all math learners and encourages students who might not find immediate success in their math journey to push through their mistakes. Excellent. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Damien. Damien, you have two minutes and your time begins now. Thank you much. Think of any task you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it be parenting, leisure, work around the house, or a hobby. That task requires completing some sort of objective. Ultimately, you want to get the job done, but how it gets done and how efficiently it gets completed will vary from person to person. And very frequently, it is the tool that the person chooses that will help in the completion of the task. Should I get out the vacuum to clean up that mess or will a broom and dustpan work? Do I have a screwdriver to turn that screw or can I use this dime? That's why the best standard of math, math practice is SMP number five, use appropriate tools strategically. Frequently, the tool a person uses to complete a task is based on their experience level. A beginning woodworker is not going to use the same tools that a more seasoned carpenter would to build a toolbox or a cabinet, but even an experienced woodworker may still use a very simple tool but in a very clever and unique way. I believe the same happens for mathematicians, both young and old. Typically, the tool people think of in a math classroom is a calculator, but it could also be a compass, geoboard, patty paper, algebra tiles, Lego, even pencil and paper. The list goes on and on. The key is to use that tool in a way that makes sense to the user and helps them solve the problem at hand. Let's let our students be Richard Dean Anderson in our classrooms. You might know him better as MacGyver, but let's encourage our kids to be math MacGyver. It might not be elegant to fashion a solution using only a paperclip, duct tape, gum, and some matches, but the variety of tools at our students' disposal can help them explore mathematics, build confidence, and find a deeper understanding that they may not have had before. When a student encounters a word problem they aren't comfortable with, let's encourage them to explore with place value discs, dice, and cards to figure out the strategy they want to take to tackle the problem at hand. Before long, they won't be novice mathematicians, but rather seasoned veterans that can MacGyver their way to a solution. Thank you. Even a MacGyver reference. All right. And finally, we will hear from Fawn. Fawn, you have two minutes and your time begins now. 
Thank you. My favorite math practice is number seven, look for and make use of structure. So my claim is that it's far superior math practice and all the other ones because it's what mathematical thinking and doing and learning are all about. Uh, It might be too obvious that I pick number seven because of my passion for and devotion to visual patterns, which of course have physical structures for us to notice uh, what stays the same, uh, if any, and what changes and how um, the pattern changes. We want students to look for that structure, uh, shifting away from our, their attention away from the detail and focus on the thing, right? the big picture that underlies the problem or the system. Um, this thing can be a visual pattern, uh, an equation, right? a function, expression, geometric sequence, or um, construction or sequence. Our human brain uh, wants to identify patterns. If anything, we actually need to um, proceed with caution as sometimes we jump to conclusions too soon and notice a pattern when actually there isn't one. Um, It's our job as teachers to provide opportunities for students to have these structural aha moments by not telling them what to look for, what and where to look for. Um, I only do two types of warm-ups, visual patterns and math talks. And a number talk or a number talks. Number talk is actually mental math. The, the reason behind um, having to do it mentally is to encourage students uh, to find and pay attention to the structure, right? The thing about that problem that eases um, the load of the computation. Uh, our youngest children, for example, switch from adding to multiplication, and it's due to structure, right? And all these changes and flexes that we do to a problem uh, shows that we understand uh, the structure. Um, like doubling and halving when we're trying to multiply two numbers. We don't always have to distribute first, for example. Uh, so there's so much of um, MP7, of course, in writing proofs in geometry also. Thank you all. That was a great start. You heard some great uh, uh, support for these three SMPs. And obviously, Ron and I, again, would, would support number three as well in there. And they're all, of course, interrelated. Um, but I, I just want to hear a little bit about, like, concreteness, like how does this take shape for each of you in your own SMP? How does it take shape in your classroom? Like, like start with Paige here, like number one, how do you help students or like, is there an explicit thing you do in activity or, or something you say to help really encourage and, and focus on the perseverance side of things or the, the making sense of things? Um, yeah. So I think um, I've done a lot of like moving to the whiteboard and working with groups. And I think this might go a little bit with SMP number three, but I think those types of things and having the support allow students to make mistakes and put something down without being like, this is permanent, and then start to make sense of the problem in a way that they can erase and change without it being like bad, bad in their head. Um, and then just help seeing them like work with other students and being able to see the other whiteboard students persevere because if they're stuck, there's that visual thinking um, that Peter talks about in the thinking classrooms, and they can like take another step forward and are able to use their classmates, help them persevere when they're stuck. Nice. And then Damien, how do you help students really think about the importance of choosing strategically their tools? And do you make it explicit in your classroom? I, I try to at times make it explicit. I like to a lot of times in my classroom, work through it like a student would. Instead of it me being the person up front, 
um, telling the student that this is how they have to do it. I kind of work through my thinking of, okay, why am I choosing this method? Why am I choosing this tool to approach this problem um, in my AP stats classes? What's going to be our most efficient way to display some data? I mean, maybe, maybe we want to get out of calculators to do something. Maybe we w- just want to arrange the M&Ms in a dot plot on our desk and, and work through it that way. Um, but trying to show them the ways to go through and explore and find success in those different methods. And kind of like what Fawn was talking about in, in her comment, um, when she was talking about like the number talks and the math talks is a lot of times in my warmups, when we're going through and doing a problem, um, encouraging and embracing and celebrating all the varieties of approaches and different methods that students took to get that and letting kids see that some ways were more efficient, more efficient than others. Um, and some are very unique ways to get things done. And fun. I know you mentioned visual patterns is a great way to get students to see structure. And are, are there other tools you use or is there something you, you talk about with students to really emphasize this idea of like seeing structure and like zooming in, zooming out or whatever? Thank you. Yeah. So I, I mentioned two, the two warm-up types. I do visual patterns and number talks. And then um, something that I, you know, encouraging teachers to do more is um, just provide the answer, right? Just get, give them the answer and then ask for the how. How did this happen? And um, one of the things I love that I can remember right away is, um, um, sorry, uh, order of operations, right? Normally order of operations, whether you use PEMDAS or VETMAS or something, I don't use anything. I don't teach it at all. I want the kids to teach themselves. And that's simply, you know, here, here's a, here's a statement, here's an equation, and there's the answer. And it has exponents, brackets, and just, yeah, just you know, a chunk of it. And then, so just have the kids, right? Just how did we get this? You know, mathematicians have agreed on this set of rules just so um, that we can agree on something. And it's really arbitrary um, at the end of the day. You know, these these things we do from left to right or right to left, right, which is set. And so, yeah, so I, I do a lot of um, give the answer and ask the how. I also do what I call intelligent practice, which is, again, it's one of those that, um, you know, the, the questions in such a way that as they do them, it, it hone, they hone in. For example, um, let's say a, a sub- set of subtraction problems where, um, you know, the numbers are different, but they get the same answer. And hopefully they get the same answer. They're like, oh, that's funny. What's going on? They were not expecting the same answer. But when the fact that they do get the same answer, now they're paying closer attention to uh, why is that, right? So the, I call it intelligent practice rather than just the mindless practice that we sometimes do. Um it's just so that we can pay attention to something, you know, back to this this structure that I want the kids to focus and I can be intentional about that and help them out scaffold it in such a way. Um, um, yeah, and um, math tricks is another one, uh, as in uh, there is no such, you know, we, we are, we're not supposed to kid, kid, teach kids math tricks, but I say teach them all. Just, you know, it's fun because it's immediate engagement, Right. Hey, I can beat you at this. You can have the calculator all day long, but I can do this. Well, that's because there is actually a reason behind it and have the kids, the motivation's already there. They want to beat me and uh, they get to work. And, um, but yeah, so that trick is really not a trick. It's grounded in, 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 in reasoning. And, but then, you know, instead of me telling them, they can discover on their own. Thank you. Um, so 
you know, thinking about, we, we had a previous episode where we were talking about uh, different assessments, alternative assessments. And, um, you know, in my time in classrooms and seeing teachers, I have seen a couple of teachers who want to assess the standards of mathematical practice that students are using and to a, a certain level or a metric. Um, well, I guess it's a two-part question and we'll start with you, Fawn. First is, should we assess the standards of mathematical practice? And if the answer is yes, then why, uh, like, how can we assess yours? If it's no, why shouldn't we assess these? And you just mentioned, I feel like the dirty word assessment. <laughs> oh, not my favorite thing, but I know it's necessary. And uh, I think that what's difficult about it is, um, you know, the metric, right? How, to, how do you measure it? And um, so I, I, a great question. I'm not sure because I want you to test it, but I don't want, to, at the same time, I don't want students to be graded on it. So there's that difference. I, I think of a performance task in California. Kids, uh, in addition to the multiple choice and other um, questions, they also have a performance task. So in a performance task, I like, um, I think that you could get at the math practices there. And um, and also the other thing about maybe against testing it is simply uh, the SMPs are meant over time, right? That's why it spans K-12. We have our content standards for grade-specific, but our SMPs span the grades. We want the kids to you know start at, at K and, you know, and, and never ending. It's a lifelong thing. So how do you test something that you want kids to be lifelong learners? Uh, Damien, same questions to you. Uh, I think I'd piggyback exactly off of what Fawn was saying. And it's there, they, they span, you want to find growth in these, all of these practices as you go through, I, I think an acknowledgement of which, you know, if, if you're really trying to make them be apparent and visible to students, um, and you're referencing them frequently, getting them to the point where they can kind of acknowledge what they were doing as a mathematician, I think is great, but the, the tough part becomes as soon as you start to get into assessment, um, who's, how does the rubric work? How do you determine, um, like in my case, how are you going to use it strategically? We want to celebrate people getting answers and finding success in that way. And then starting to judge them because I didn't think that was the, the effective way to that kid. That's a win. They got a right answer. They worked their way through it. And, and then coming down and being the judge on them saying, eh, you could use a different tool and it, it diminishes their worth as a student and their value of their answers. So I, I would not be in favor of attaching a grade to a, an assessing a standard of math practice, but making kids reflect and have conversations around it, I think is always a great thing. Hey, cheers, Taryn, to give us a non-answer as well. I have an actual answer. Um, I think we can affect this, but building off of what both Damien and Fawn said, I think it needs to be a self-assessment by the student. So I don't think we necessarily can't assess it, but yeah, it needs to be a student reflection. And actually, I did try this at the end of last year um, with my one of my classes. I had them reflect on our year and look back at what we learned and choose one like topic that matched each standard and explain like, how did you persevere through or how did you make sense of this problems? And yeah. how did you make sense of problems and persevere in solving them? Like which chapter that we did, do you feel like there was a topic where you really had to do that? And like, which chapter did you find 
a topic where you really had to use the structure. Like we had talked about, we use similar triangles when we got to circle segments and like they use that structure they had already seen before help them solve new problems. And so as a self-assessment, it worked really well. And I was able to see what they learned and like through the lens of them seeing themselves as like a mathematician displaying these different characteristics. Nice. I, I want to get back into why yours is the best. And, and I'm wondering, and I'll start with you, Damien. I'm going to go a little out of order here. Um, do you have like a story, a moment where you can like say like, oh, this student or like this this class had a great moment where like they really succeeded with this SMP or like had a great, you know, great learning experience through this SMP kind of moment and, and tell us why. And you could, you could think for a moment. No, I think Damien already changed his mind and it's number seven. Yeah, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to think of a time of, of where I walked out of the classroom at the end of the day. I was like, they crushed standard five. Um, man, I don't know. Like what was a, like a time where it's like, what tool did they use to, to solve the problem? Or like where you just had a, that conversation with students in the moment or something where they were like, oh yeah, they really made a decision about the tool there. I don't know. I don't know if one really sticks out in my mind uh, explicitly uh, uh, about that, where we've had that conversation. That's the, the, the thing that keeps bouncing around in my head is when I'm, th I'm thinking of, when I'm thinking of tools, um, sometimes we get stuck in that physical realm of a tool in a math classroom that's going to do something. And back in my day when I was teaching geometry, that was a little bit easier to, to come across there, but I'm, I'm more thinking of the kind of the, that cognitive tool and that approach that you're going to take to a problem. And I, I'm going back to a, a warm up problem that we, a bell ringer that we started in my Calc class last year, where we were just kind of doing algebraic work and, um, yeah, it's, it was, it was a, a group of seniors who yeah, had some struggles with times with algebra and remembering certain specific pieces of things. Um, and I had a method in my, you know, my efficient route of how that they were going to go about doing this problem. And not one of my groups in my class did that route. And I, over half the class, every group had a different version of it. And over half of them were new, unique thought process and ways to kind of like what, what Fawn was talking about with orders of operations and things, um, attack strategies completely different. And, and, and the, the algebraic tool that they used really sparked a great conversation and pulling off that, why are you doing that? What made you choose this? Um, it was nice to hear the conversation go around, not because of something explicitly taught in class, but they, they brought it around to a mathematical lens of understanding that deeper reason of why they chose that approach and why they chose that cognitive tool to do it. I think that's the best I can come up with right now. No, that's good. I actually love, I mean, if I may share, I just love the fact that you, you know, you had a, you couldn't think of one right off the top of your head because yeah, I was thinking about one too. And I said, I don't know, you know, um, yeah, so that the fact that because you're trying to honor that cognitive versus always physical, and unlike Rob, you know, it's it's hard for the rest of us to pick our favorite ch child, but um, there ain't like favorite practice. Do, do you have a favorite visual pattern or favorite thing that, that when students really get structure? 
My favorite ones are the ones that if you just crunch numbers, if you just, you know, if you just do X, Y table, like, like a lot of the teachers do, it's, yeah, just immediately teach and it's hard to unteach that. Uh, but if you just stay with the structure, I mean, it was a simple linear equation, like 2X plus 3, let's say. Um, but the, 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 the structure of it is so beautiful. And uh, so it was so simple and it would be completely ruined. I guess my favorite because it's completely ruined to me if you just, oh, oh, I see that, you know, the common difference or something. Yeah. Just reduce it down to numbers rather than just stay with the, the, the structure. Beautiful. And Paige, over to you. So do you have a moment where a student really made sense, took the time or really persevered that you can share? Yeah. Um, actually, we use visual patterns a lot and I left them. Specifically, I love the quadratic one that you can see the squares. And that also, like, I think ties in in my class. Um, we do, we try to do a lot of non-curricular tasks at the beginning of the year, even at the beginning of class, like for a few minutes. And I find that that really helps students build their perseverance because they don't feel stuck like they do with like an algebra problem where they're like, I'm bored. I don't want to figure this out. Like they want to push through and persevere. And I think it teaches them how to do that, especially with the visual pattern, because there's such like a low floor, high ceiling task where they can count and they can look for like pictures and structure. Um, and so I, I think the visual patterns are actually one of the times for sure when I see students like making sense of it, like when they see the square and they're like, cool, squared, squared. I'm like, yes. Um, so that kind of thing is like my favorite. <laughs> See, I've got most people on board with number seven. Hello. Let's not deny it. I am, we can shut this thing down right now. It's <laughs> fun with it. So it's funny that Fawn keeps like bringing up that it's like number seven is the superior one. Wait, I think far superior. We can run that back. I think far superior is the one that she says. Uh, but it's funny that like you talk about that. You're talking about like students looking for a structure, right? And then Damien talked a little bit about like, Math MacGyver. And when I think about MacGyver, like, what did he have to do first? Paige, you want to chime in? It sounds like that you're, yeah. it sounds like everybody's kind of talking about like number one. Um, so, you know, Damien and Fawn, like, defend a little bit more why, like, yours is better than making sense of a problem. Uh, because you both kind of talked about making sense of that problem a little bit. Fawn, I'll let you go first since you're the far superior one. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, I don't think to pick number one is cheating because Paige is right. I mean, you re that's why it's number one. <laughs> you have to make sense of it. So, yeah. So I give. But, um, and, and at, at some point, I, I hope, you know, we, we know that it, it's, it's, it's not possible to pick one. And also, Paige, what you mentioned um, gives me a, like a, another claim that I can think about is that I claim that you we teachers cannot teach the eight math practices that they're meant for students, right? They're written for students to experience, to embody, and to um, foster that. So what we can do as teachers are offer these, these great tasks or just tasks. And, you'll, um, and, and I'm trying to avoid saying rich tasks now, even though I always say it, rich tasks all the time looking because I want to honor the teacher. Because not every task in the textbook, right, or whatever we have is necessarily rich. What it can be rich is our teaching. So, um, yeah, and, and, and offer opportunities for them to, um, to bring out these eight math practices. Um, so, yeah, we, we can't teach it, but we can certainly uh, offer opportunities. And um, 
And yet I just give in to fate. I did. It's, it sounds like you're far superior just went away. Because um, you did say picking number one is cheating. Damien, you go ahead. I'm going to give you the floor as well, too. And Damien, I have a tool that very few people use. And so I, I love uh, choosing the right tool. And I have a session on this, guys. I, I, I go around the country, talk about drawing rectangles to solve word problems. That's my tool, it's drawing rectangles. I'm known locally as the rectangle queen. That, that's, that's how bad I am with rectangles. Only <laughs> according to herself. Yeah, according to the world fawn. Uh, and also spreadsheets, guys. I know you're both in high, teaching high school, and I appreciate it, but I'm middle school, and I want the elementary teachers to start using the tool of spreadsheets. Yep, just get things arrayed. And have a if we're kind of trying to figure out of, you know, how, how we defend ourselves against number one um, right now, I think the part where I, my brain's going with regards to using tools strategically is sometimes and a lot of times um, where kids will struggle is they don't make sense of a problem right from the start. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to persevere until you start doing a whole lot of trial and error. So like Rob, when you were talking about MacGyvering things up, you have a sense of how the problem is going to work. And I'm going to try this thing because I think this is kind of how this, the, the, the problem works. This is how I'm making sense out of it a little bit, but I really don't know. So I, I've, my, my tool, my tool belt, my toolbox, I'm just going to start digging in and start jamming paper clips into outlets and hopefully things don't blow up and the thing was turned off and that tool did not work. And as you start to use a tool, whether, you know, like I'm thinking of like area model multiplication stuff, I, I, I bring that up to my upper level, my, my upperclassmen in, in school that they hadn't really seen it. And I'm showing them two digit multiplication with boxes and showing them how to mentally math this. Like, this is a really cool way to do this. Um, and then it works itself into algebraic approaches and yes, it's, for some people, it's like, oh, it's not the efficient way that we've done this before, but this is a strategic way to do this. And they think that this might be the way to do this problem. And then they realize it doesn't work that way. And each little use of a different tool adds a little bit more sense to the problem. And yes, you're persevering as you're going through it, um, as long as you don't throw all your tools in the garbage. Yeah, that perseverance is huge. So the second part, right. And and that's part of, you know, they 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 have a hard time making sense of it. But for them to stick with it is uh is is all we're asking for is not to give up, right? Yeah. And then let's talk about number five a little bit. So speaking of tools, I'm wondering, I know Fawn, you talked about rectangles as one of your favorite tools, but Damien Page, and I'll start with you, Page here. Do you have a favorite tool or favorite two tools? So what are the things you really like to see a lot of use uh, in your classroom? Um, yeah, I mean, I think my favorite tool is the whiteboard. Um, I feel like you can do a lot of thinking on a whiteboard. We can pretty much do all of our class with a whiteboard. Um, but I will say that my second new favorite tool for my struggling freshman is graspable math and like being able for them being able to like learn how to do the thing without getting bogged down with all the arithmetic. So I think there are a lot of specific tech tools that I could say, but I think 
a lot of them are similar. And that one really stands out as something that like is helping my students understand structure and just how things work without having to like make little mistakes and be able to observe. Yeah, Damien, do you have a favorite? I know you listed a bunch in your opening statement. There's a lot like, I mean, I was going to say paper and pencil, the old tried and true one. I mean, like, I know we kind of think tech tools, but, you know, my kids love whiteboards in place because it's just quick thinking and erase your mistakes as you go through. But, you know, when, when my kids are doing visual pattern stuff, we're drawn, I mean, you're drawn and you're, you're tying in all those pieces and we, it, like when we're talking with like our kids that have, you know, Chromebooks and iPads and devices that come through, it's, it almost limits them sometimes. I, I want them to have that freedom to think. Um, and then when Paige mentioned the graspable math thing, it made me think back to the, like the, I think it was the solve me mobiles and all the mobile puzzles of figuring out the balancing of the shapes and getting that idea of equality and balance in equations. Um, and they realize that you understand what you're doing. It's just, it's fun shapes and you can make sense out of it that way. Yeah. Fun. Did you want to add anything else to this tools conversation? Or I added spreadsheets. So that's my, yeah. yeah. I, yeah I'm, I'm literally kind of trying to, you know, see if I can try something new. So I'm, I'm getting away from the rectangles. Well, it depends on the problem, but, um, you know, racial tables, right? We have kids, we promote racial tables. Well, that's what spreadsheets are. And, uh, but it's just so much faster. So whenever I, I work with teachers and, and for the last several years, I, I've always said like the standards of mathematical practice to me are not just the standards of mathematical practice. They're the standards for being a successful human being. And I always try to relate the standards of mathematical practice to something that is like real life, not math forward thinking, you know, related, you know, for instance, um, destructive viable argument, you know, I fold clothes on the, uh, and put it on the bed and I put everything away, but leave the towels. And I walk past that hallway closet where the towels go 15 times. And I have to explain myself on why I did that. Um, <laughs> so for each of yours, could you, you know, compare your standard mathematical practice to something that's like real world outside of a K-12 or even higher ed setting to show like why your standard is actually the best standard. And we'll start with Paige, since you uh, cheated and picked the first one. Um, I think mine's pretty applicable to everyday life. So I'm not sure I can even think of a specific one. But I mean, anytime I'm trying to solve any problem, I feel like you have to make sense of like, what is the problem first? And then you have to keep working through it until you find the answer. I don't know. Like, like what specifically? Like, uh, I mean, what problem, even today, like as a teacher, what problem today came up? that you had to make sense of it and try to persevere in solving. My computer just shut off in the middle of class, which was fun. And you're like, okay, what did I do? Is it dead? Do I need to like go get my charger? Do I need to like restart it? What's happening? Um, and then, yes, I figured out I needed my charger. When I got my charger, like worked to figure out how to get it back on and back to where we were. I, I also uh, related to where like, uh, you're driving to work and all of a sudden you hit traffic and because of like construction, you're like, oh, well, now to figure out which way to go around to get to the next spot um, so you can get there on time. So, all right, Damien, your turn. Um, you know, how do you use appropriate tools strategically in the everyday world? 
Yeah, it's kind of like what I had stated in my intro a little bit. It's like that decision-making of what's going to be the thing that gets me to my objective. I don't necessarily say the quickest, but the way that makes most sense to me. And I mean, I'm even thinking of just how I want to get into school like this last week, you know, where I'm trying to do some teacher prep work in my room. I want to figure out which way do I want to come into school? Do I want to ride in on my scooter? Do I want to ride in on my bike? Do I want to drive in my car? What's the temperature like outside? Do I want to air conditioning, a nice comfortable ride? Do I want the breeze in my air? Um, how, how do I want to complete this task in the way that will benefit me the most? Um, it's, it's tough to do one of those kind of things in a strategic way, but you know, then I'm trying to figure out my pathing. Um, what's the most efficient route that I want to take? Do I want to take the scenic route because I got some time and I need to, my time to clear my head or do I just need to get in and get out and get something done? So that's, I've got to figure out what the best tool for the task is to complete what my objective is for that day. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, also I talk about like you know, having, um, you know, an at-home project, especially when everything was shut down, we were doing, all doing at-home projects. Like what tool do we all use? YouTube, Google. Like that's, we did that all the time. And then I'm even going back to thinking in, in my coaching realm of, you know, when I've got an objective of what I want to try to get done for practice and for an opponent coming up, what is the best drill that we're going to use to set this up? What, what, what techniques do we need to do? What equipment do we need? Um, because we could, we can learn it the fast way. We can learn it the, the meaningful way and have some, some of my players actually still remember it and retain it and actually perform pr correctly in the next game. All right, Fawn, it is your turn to redeem your far superiority by sharing with us why it's so important that number seven, uh, relates to the real world here. So glad you keep remembering that. Um, well, I think. One in five are easier to apply in real life. It's, um, but the math practicing world, I always call them um, habits of mind, right? The eight math practices, habits of mind. So, and that's one we want for everybody, for every learner and every worker and every citizen kind of thing. And um, Dr. Gordon Hamilton, he has a, a short, he has a, he says this about math practice seven that I love because it's so short. He says, be observant. So, when you observe things, right? Well, whether it's a situation or a thing, we we uh, we can tend to it. If we can observe it, we can tend to it in our best in best situation. And uh, in terms of real life, I know slacking observant. Um, my husband's not here, but yeah, if he could be more observant, that would be great. Like, I mean, yeah, the the stuff he really doesn't see. He has two perfectly good eyes, as far as I know, but he just doesn't see. And I realize. Oh, you just don't see it. It's like, oh, you, you, the fact that you just tossed something, it completely missed it, but you don't bother to, you know, correct that. It's like, you don't see it. Yeah. So I'm perfectly observant. So, um, so I'm, I'm, my problem, it's, it's others around me, like my, but yeah, just, just pay attention to the thing there, there's math practice of it. Yeah, cross the street, you know, pay attention. I, I think too, it, go, it, it sorry, Chris, I, I think too, it goes into like, like when we go on vacations, we go on trips or whatever, like we go to the same spot and we find like the same places that we like to go and we repeat that pattern. And even to the point of like, 
buying a plane ticket for a trip, knowing like what days it's, uh, you know, it's lower and fair. And like we, you know, my father-in-law does that all the time where he's like, oh, well, I know this day I'll be in charge of it. And, and he always gets us the best rate uh, because of it, but it's, but it's a pattern. It's, it happens every week, every year at the same time. And then we know that we're going to get the best deals and get the best service and it's a pattern. How many of us eat, order the same thing at our favorite restaurant? Oh, yeah. Salmon every time. That's all five hands. Yep. Because we notice the thing we love and we don't want to risk it. And so. Yeah. Very good. I I have one last question. I want to just go a little deeper here um, because I think about when I work with teachers and even when I look at textbooks, uh, all I hear about or all I read about is the content standards. Like I'm covering this content standard and this standard and so on. And I don't often hear much about SMPs um, or read it and have it included in the textbook, depending on which textbook you're using. And so I'm just curious, do do you think content versus standards of math practice is is one more important than the other? And and how would you advise teachers to think about that? And I'll start with you, Paige. Um, Actually, I think my textbook has the SMPs in it, but they're always just like thrown in like, oh, and uh clinical model here like I, you know i don't think they think about it um and i think they're equally important i think like we said before it's just easier to assess content standards um but as a teacher if you want to develop students who are mathematicians and are able to like do the things mathematicians should do we need to be able to do that but i mean I don't think either one is more important than the other because without the content standards, like what would we be linking these standards with? Like they kind of balance each other out, in my opinion. Yeah, Damien, do you think they're balanced or is, is there one side more important than the other? I think you can use you, know, you can use your content standards to teach the pra- the math practice standards of your teaching it through the content a little bit. And I, I think going through the, like going through and teaching the AP program, they've got that, it's, it's a very similar vibe going through there that, that permeates throughout. And it's one of the, sometimes a a little bit of a challenge when you start focusing on contents and standards. Sometimes they only occur for a couple of weeks in October and then a different standard, different content standard shows up in November. And whereas these math practice standards are throughout, like we've been talking about, they're, they're from K through 12. Um, so you kind of end up finding a way to teach the eight standards via the content. And then going back to like what Paige had talked about at the very beginning about like the self-assessment and the self-reflection piece, um, you can use, then those students have those experiences through that content to relate to, hey, that's when I, when I was using this content, I did SMP 7, and then I did SMP 1, and I did SMP 3, and they're using the content to identify what they did uh, with the different math practice standards. And Fawn, your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate what you both said, um, Paige and Damien. We, we might be familiar with um, the teachers or the five math practices from Peg Smith, the book, right? And I was thinking about the anticipate part, um, the, the first step to anticipate. Normally, we anticipate the solution path, right? the different ways that uh, students might solve it. But I think we should also anticipate um, the MPs that might come out. I mean, as we plan this lesson to be intentional about 
you know, okay, so here's a task, what different solutions, but also what might, what MPs might, um, that I could encourage, that I could foster, that I could facilitate and draw more um, from this task. And also, um, I was thinking that, you know, no, I, there's no one task, right? We know there's no one task that can have all eight math practices. At the same, that said, I don't think you can only engage in one math practice as we're just talking about here. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's both. No task, I don't believe there's one task that can have embodies all eight, or not one I can think of. But then also, there's no task also that just allows one. And, um, and uh, like Paige said, um, it doesn't, it, I, I always say MPs uh, tend to live on classroom posters. Or, you know, it's tossed into the, in, in, in the lesson and you just see and you, you go right on, you focus on the content and it lives on these posters and it gets called out. Hey, we just did number three. But what, what Paige is doing, you know, have the kids self-assessment, right? Really talk about it. I'd encourage the entire staff, the admins, everybody, everybody involved to be speaking from the eight math practice, lift the language from the eight math practice and, and say it so. Did, did you see the structure? What tool did you use? Uh, did you attend to precision? I mean, that that's what the eight math practice are. So the more that we say them, the more that we communicate, you know, the principal walks in and says, oh, I like how you're persevering. Uh, I like the conjecture that you made, right? Just directly lift the language from the ASMPs and not, not in fake way, very authentic way. This is what we're doing. And so, yeah, unless that document and that thing, you know, lives in our lesson and comes alive by us really honoring it, that that's how we can bring it in in an authentic ways. Can I add something? Yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking when Phone was talking too about how like you can teach the content without really using any of the SNPs. But you can't really teach or teach the SNPs without the content. And so I think that's kind of like where they balance and where they met. Exactly. Like, yeah, Damien, you said through content. Excellent. Thank you all. And that concludes our questioning round. And we will now end by giving each speaker a minute or two to make their final arguments to you. And first up, uh, we're going to start with Paige. Paige, floor is yours. Okay. Um, I think we can say, even though Fawn thinks it's cheating, that SMP number one is still obviously the best um, because it is applicable to everyday life. But overall, it really helps all of our students to find success and not feel bad about themselves when they can't get a problem right the first time. It allows them to make mistakes. It helps them to see that even mathematicians who have done a lot and appear to be smarter than them are able to go through the same exact process. However, I will say that after having this discussion, I do believe that the others are just a big part of this one. And without the others, it wouldn't be so good. So I am conceding a little bit. And yes, admitting that maybe it was cheating to pick it. Thank you. And next up, Damien. Like Rob had stated at the beginning, uh, the eight standards of math practice to a math teacher are a lot like a parent with eight kids. You just really not don't try to choose favorites. However, as time goes on, you know the strengths of each of your kids and know who to go to in and for various situations. That probably describes best the relationship I have with the eight standards. It's hard to just pick one, but the one I frequently refer my students to is number five. After analyzing the situation and identifying the object, what's going to be our strategy and what are we going to use? I primarily experienced mathematics through a high school lens, but this extends all the way from pre-K years to the college years. 
an added benefit as students get older is that they gain the ability to better compare and contrast the tools that they could use for a given problem. Strategic use of tools has allowed us as a species to advance and modernize our world throughout history. And the strategic use of tools in the math classroom allows our students to succeed and evolve as mathematicians as they grow. Thank you, Damien. And with the final word, we have Fawn. Fawn, take it away. Okay. Yeah. Number one's best. Number five is next best. Uh, number seven, I'm just going to repeat what I said, which is, uh, what is mathematics? It is a study of patterns. And number seven is asking that we look for and make use of the structure. And uh, so looking for that pattern and seeing the underlying uh, things so that we can generalize. It, maybe it's not far superior now, but it, it's it's pretty good. And so I, I appreciate, I, yeah, one in five. You know what? How about this? The three that we picked are the best three out of the eight, for sure. There you go. <laughs> Whoa. Wait a minute. Okay. She, she's come down a little bit on, on how superior number seven is. That's good. Thank you all. And that concludes this wonderful, fun debate. You've given us such good thoughts and you really uh, brought out some of the important standards of math practice. I hope this gives teachers out there some good food for thought. And now it's up to our listeners to take a moment, moment uh, ponder the arguments, share with friends and, and colleagues uh, and people at your cookouts and, and anywhere else, uh, which standard mathematical practice resonates most with you and which one is your favorite. Be sure to go to our Twitter or X at Debate Math Pod to share your thoughts on this debate. What is your favorite SMP and why? And huge thanks to our three guests for being so thoughtful, respectful, playing off each other. It was a, just a wonderful all-around discussion and, and we learned so much. And thanks to those who are listening. We hope you enjoyed and learned from this debate. And as we wrap up, Paige, where can listeners find you? You can find me at Mrs. Math on Twitter and on Mastodon. And Damien, where can listeners find you? You can find me at Damien Best at both X and Mastodon as well. And Fawn, where can people find you? I am also on Twitter, X, and I need to get over. I think I created a Mastodon account, so I need to just hop on over at Fawn P. Wynn. All right. Thank you all. Want to learn more about incorporating debate activities into your math classroom? Go to lozniak.com slash podcast to sign up for my mailing list and get your first set of example debate activities you could use with your students today. Go to lozniak.com slash podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us with comments and questions on debatemath.com or follow us on Twitter at debatemathpod and follow along with hashtag debatemathpod. Rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Your feedback is super important to us. Well, that's all from us. Looking forward to debating with you more next episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.